0: Radio 20, ma
1: and welcome to Parsha Talk. This is the best Parsha Talk ever. No matter where no you are. No
2: longer go. in Dutch's
1: County. We moved, we moved to New Jersey, to Long Island, and New York City. Uh, and I would <laughs> I'm by the the Highland Park Conservative. <laughs> for joining me today, as always, my good friends, I'm Miriam. I'm with Jeremy Kalmanowski of the Anshay Chesed in Manhattan, i Barry Chessler. Chesler. Salman Schechter of Long Island. It's great to see you again. Shalom, shalom.
0: And Elliot Malman of the Conservative so Temple of Highland New Jersey.
1: What's have, the full name? We just want to. We want to say first of all, uh, thank you to the eight people. That's a short name. Watching this, we 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 upped our our viewership to from from like five to eight last week. Actually, on Facebook, it says we have over three hundred views, but but those are not quality views. There are eight quality views facebook says anybody who dips in for two seconds is a view so to our viewers first of all you can also listen to us when you are preparing for shabbos and secondly you can share this excellent discussion you can you can share the shear. you can share this share, share the, the shear. you can boost our members our, our viewership by liking this and sharing it that's you know how it works on facebook and then just you know send us a line we're happy to to hear from you we're happy to to get your comments uh and uh, <clears throat> to our to our dedicated listeners all around the world thank you for joining us uh i wanted you know we, we started dedicating broadcasts to last week and uh, this week happens to be on my father's yard site is the second yard site for my late father alvin Elment. so tuesday uh this coming week is his yurt site we uh uh are, Saying let his memory be a blessing when well, thinking of all, all sort of nice things and, and funny memories of, of my late father. And so here we have Parsha, two Parshiyot this week, ending up the Book of Vayikra. It's Bahar and double Parsha. And uh, there's lots to discuss here. There's there's tremendous amount of material in both, uh, and the material does spend a lot of different topics. But why don't we start, why don't we, we launch right into Bihar and Bihar takes us into uh, laws pertaining to the the land. Uh, it says, el Aretz, Asher Lachem, So you know, as usual, we can spend a good hour talking about coming into the land. But uh, in our discussion of these laws, um, what are these? What are these laws doing here at Mount Sinai? And and uh, can you put yourself in the mind of the Israelite who is listening to these laws? Um, you know, it's not fresh out of the land of Egypt, but the, the Egypt is a memory, a recent memory. And so my my question is, is the land of Israel an abstraction or is it reality? And if it's a reality, then how will understanding the calendar help these israelites in the land when they come in and what is the purpose of these laws so rabbi chester barry chester take a take a good shot at this
2: good shot so i I think that for our ancestors coming out of egypt the the torah in a sense is directional everything is pointing towards the land of israel the God who came to them in Egypt was a God who identified himself as the God of the ancestors who promised them the land, and God said in Sefer Shemot, he took them out or would take them out of Egypt in order to get to the land. I think that sometimes, because of the vagaries of history, we focus on not getting to the land, which is how the Torah ends, but for our ancestors, especially those who made it to Mount Sinai seven weeks later, according to our tradition, they're focused on getting to the land. And it may be, what struck me when you were talking, Elliot, is that all the talk about the land is an attempt to concretize the land for them because maybe it is abstract, as you said, and it's the talk about the land that's going to make it real for them until they actually get to it. Was, strange, but to them. One last slide I, I just wanted to add is that you know, we're commanded to observe Shabbat and the land is commanded to observe Shabbat. And I get the sense and for the reflection that the Torah here is treating the land as almost as a, a, as a life, as a person. And it's investing the land with human characteristics because just as we have to treat our fellows and our neighbors and the gayrim amongst us a certain way, we have to treat the land a certain way too.
1: Well, certainly in the, in the sense that the land doesn't belong to you. And I think that that, that is really underlying these these laws, that the, the land belongs to God. Jeremy, you want to just kind of weigh in on, on some of these thoughts
0: or take it anywhere you want to go? Yeah, I'd like to think for a moment perhaps about, um, I, I, you know, what one might speculate that that these very land-based laws um, might actually have entered the tra- tradition, entered the Torah, not, not, though of course it's, it's portrayed as being um, uh, here at Mount Sinai, maybe, maybe laws that are about agriculture actually emerge from a society that uh, is, is engaged in agriculture and not, not one that's being fed by manna every day. But the thing that strikes me about this passage in the, the first bit of Baha'ron 25 and then as it goes on is how much the focus is on poverty. The the focus is on a society in which some people are really poor. Uh, The idea in in the Torah is that when they reach the land, the land will be distributed equitably and families will all have a a landhold. But what's going to happen? Well, what's going to happen is that people are going to grow poor and they're going to have to sell off their ancestral lands, but every 50th year, you have to proclaim liberty throughout the land. Um, uh, of course, is written on our liberty bell. Proclaim liberty throughout the land. And everybody shall return to their ancestral homes. Every 50 years, people get a second chance. Well, why would you need a second chance? Because this society, like every society, is going to have people who are significantly suffering. So my favorite part of... Uh, Parshad Behar is a series of commandments that are are kind of like a ladder about dealing with poverty. So the, the first one says, like, when, when, you're, when your brother grows poor um, and has to sell off his land to somebody else, and as, as you guys said, as Barry said a minute ago, the land belongs to God, not to people. Um, the quote unquote buying land is a bit of a misnomer. You have a lot, it's a land is only a long term lease at the end of the Jubilee, reverts to the original owner. So a person is in really economic trouble. They had to sell off their, their land or sell off some portion of the 49 year cycle. First thing that happens is, if your brother goes so poor that they have to sell off their ancestral homeland, you gotta pay off that debt for them. And that should take care of it. But if that doesn't work, your brother goes poor again and you have to loan them money and that should take care of it. But if that doesn't work, then the the other fellow Israelite could be sold into slavery to an Israelite, and that should work. And if that doesn't work, and it's even worse than that, and they're sold to uh, a a non-Israelite, you have to come through for your neighbors. It's going to be very expensive. You're going to be buying back land of of other poor people. You're going to be breaking them out of slavery contracts. But you as a society, you're going to be a member of Jewish society. You're going to enter into a social contract where people have got to come through for the poor. So the image of us going to the land is not in these chapters oh, it's going to be milk and honey, it's going to be fabulous, it's not going to be hard. Uh, actually, that's not the way it is. It's going to be a challenge for you to take care of each other under these circumstances. So, so what you're saying really is
1: that that underlying these laws is an economic theory. An economic theory that uh, could be summed up in the rabbinic statement, gal, gal, hu this is this is like a wheel that turns, a cycle that turns in the world. And and I think that is something that is very familiar to us. It's very familiar to the experience, certainly, you know, that the three of us have had, and certainly, you know, in, in interacting with members of our community. You know, we are we interact daily now with people whose fortunes have turned uh, because of the circumstances in the world. Uh, but I think uh, in general, in, in our respective rabbinates and and um, you know, career, you know, career uh, audiences, um, we, have, we interact with individuals who have experienced
0: changes in fortune. I certainly have. I, I, I'm sure you have. Not, not only, of course, is that true for people as individuals, you know, good health, bad health, love found, love lost, but we're sitting here on May uh, 14th, 2020 in a country in economic freefall. And I know in my congregation, we're starting to see people are experiencing job loss. Well, we're starting to see not only that, but,
1: but in terms of the solicitations that we're getting from our organizations, you know, and, and the kinds of thinking that we need to do, you know, this is a moment of real contraction thats uh, that, is, that we're, we're all experiencing economically. But let's take it back for a second, because, you know, what, what Bahar is trying to do is also not give, give us a, a calendar... In addition to an economic theory, and the calendar says, "Look, you know, this is the way the world works. The world works on a on a seven-year cycle. Six, work, six years you work. The seventh year, the, law, the land is 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 at rest. The land is restored, and the fiftieth year is a is a kind of reset." The question really is, how practical is that, and 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 how has Judaism dealt with that? Um, throughout history. Of course, you know, we've, we've been in exile, uh, you know, until the return of uh, Jewish sovereignty to the land of Israel, where the Shemitah is actually practiced. I, I wrote down that uh, the next Shemitah year is uh, 5782, according to, I guess, uh, you know, Rabbi Google. Uh, it's not, according to, uh, you know, the calendar, uh, 2021, so 5782, where we're going to be in a Shemitah year. And of course, we, we practice certain things relating to the Shemitah. In terms of, you know, obligations of, of uh, and, and many people, of course, uh, restrict their their uh, consumption in the land of Israel to things uh, not produce Right.
0: Well, the crops are
1: all
2: labeled. I was on kibbutz in 1973, which was a shemitah year as well, and it affected the marketing of the crops, and it provides us some kind of insight into Zionism because when. Sh- Jews first started coming back to the land and farming, right? The people that were living on Halukad didn't have this as an issue so much. But when Jews began to farm the land, there was an issue. And as I remember, in the late 19th, early 20th century, the solution was to sell the land to an Arab. And in time, that became untenable because... You want Jewish law to work for Jews, and it raises some interesting issues. There are all sorts of issues that the land of Israel raises for Jewish law, but land tenure is certainly an important part of it.
0: Of course, by the way, you say it doesn't work. Um, it, it is still the case. I mean, increasingly, uh, almost universally, Haredim, ultra-orthodox people, don't abide by this, uh, and and uh, the percentage of religious people are increasingly getting Haredified, but the state rabbinate does sell the land to uh, um, to non Jews, and the question is a technical question. And Rav Cook was uh, was instrumental in 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 waving this flag, and Rav Avadi Yosef, just before he died, also affirmed this is totally fine. Um, but but of course, lots of people, you know, in ultra orthodox world don't accept this. But the land is sold, and that's and and the idea is that the that the agricultural laws just don't apply to its non-Jewish owners. You
1: know, the agricultural life of Israel, modern Israel is is so critical. And of course, it was critical in antiquity, but, uh, you know, it's hard to think of, of modern Israel without its agricultural life. And and the two go, go really hand in hand. And people are so proud of, of the agricultural production in the land of Israel. Just so this one aside, you know, at, recently at Yom Ha'at um, they gave out the Israel prize. And one of the Israel prize recipients was, a. Uh, Either a biochemist or a genetic, you know, a plant geneticist. And and in the tribute to this individual, they they brought out a chef who said, this guy's responsible for producing the kinds of vegetables that we love to consume in and, and to prepare with, without the sweetness of the tomato, without, and it's going on and on and on. And, and it's like, like isn't that incredible? You know, only in Israel will you have someone, a chef, really, take paying tribute to to a, a biochemist. Um, you know, for for the Israel Prize, the equivalent of the Nobel. Do
0: you do you do, uh, do you guys? I mean, listen, I'm a I'm a romantic and sentimental person, but oh man, I just love to have produce of Eretz Yisrael. Oh. The wine, the,
1: the fruits, whatever. In Israel this week, okay. One of the things that we were going to do on the trip was to go to you know one of these um, agricultural you know research places because uh, driving this curiosity for me is you know how does the Israeli tomato? They invented the cherry tomato. How did it get to be so delicious? You know it, these Mexican tomatoes, nah. These it's a yerusha cup.
2: <laughs> <laughs> a yerusha cup. We, <laughs> Because they observe Shemitah, that's why. <laughs> so it strikes me that part of the, the shita of Shemitah and Yovel is to teach a degree of humility. Yeah. Because it's easy to think that we are the masters of the land, and Shemitah is to remind us that we're not. And in the sedra, there's this line about people who wonder what they're going to eat in the eighth and ninth year when they don't have any food. And you know the Torah tells us, assuredly, that God will provide. But that's, again, a questionable reality if every time a Shemitah came around that God would actually provide. But what strikes me is that we have this idea that the land is not beholden to us as much as we're beholden to the land. And um, you know, I spend some time, a fair amount of time, reading Wendell Berry who uh, writes a lot about agriculture. We grew up in a farm community in Kentucky in a very, I find, beautiful and moving way. And the land makes demands on us. And for us as religious Jews, we ultimately go back to God. That God is, you know, as we've said before, the owner of the land. And you know, Jeremy, you quoted the verse that's on the Liberty Bell. It seems that in order for us to be free, the land has to be free. You think Americans have that kind of relationship with the land that. uh, Absolutely not. I I think it's a great tragedy. You know, when I was growing up, I'm a few years older than you. So, um, you know, it was within like the last 50, 60 years, 80% of Americans lived in rural areas, right? The turn of the 20th century. Now, very few live in rural areas. And um, I think it, you know the fact that most of us don't grow our own food changes the way that we relate to land and the way we relate to food as well. It's such a
1: profound idea, and in fact, you know, I, I want to go back to the, the theme of humility because what you're saying really is that, that the these laws in, in in the parsha are are directed to understanding your place in the in the cosmos. Really, your place in the yeah. land, your place in time, your place in the car, your place in God's world. And God's world is a world in which which functions by these seven-year cycles, reminding us of the cycle of creation. Basically, that's the imprinted pattern in in, in seven. Um, but if we could just kind of move into the parsha, we can see that the theme of humility carries itself into things like "Vechitim kurumim karlamitach." We spoke a little bit about "Al tono ish etachim." Do not wrong your brother. Do not commit onaah. Do you want to take a, a moment to define onaah for us? Jeremy, you wanna, do you want to take?
0: Sure. So this this word Ona'a, which is exploitation uh, or take advantage of or something like that, uh, in in rabbinic tradition, there's the, the word uh, Ona'a appears multiple times and occasionally right beside each other in, in a verse. Uh, and and so the rabbis learn out that there's two kinds of onaah, two kinds of exploitation. One is verbal exploitation. That is to say, deceiving people, being cruel, cruel speech, um, wounding people's feelings, and that is its own kind of prohibition. Really important. And, and the Mishnah in Baba Mitzvah says, by the way, that's the worst kind because if you if you exploit somebody with money, um, you can come to a financial settlement. There's no way to have a finance. There's no way to, to, to to recompense somebody for hurt feelings, but the sort of how many times we taught that Mishnah at Nerma? You
1: know, it, it, I think it was the Tzirim curriculum, the Nitzanim curriculum. It was just you know, you know. yeah.
0: It was, by the way, for those of you who are not had the, had the blessing of being in our classes <laughs> in camp, Ramah, you might not know this, but camp camp is an amazing. Um, there's the education that goes on in camp. In camp is an amazing thing. In terms of Jewish observance, yes, but also in terms of getting along with large groups of people, the kids learn so much about social ethics and, and hopefully we played our own small role in that. Uh, but the, 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 the definition of ona at dvarim, the kind of exploitative speech through words was a kind of derivative meaning and the baseline meaning is be fair to people economically. We tend to think in American life that we've got this caveat emptor thing, let the buyer beware, if you can make a bad deal, it's your own fault. That's not classical halakha. Classical halakha is that that prices for for all kinds of things, not every single commodity, but prices for all kinds of things have to fall uh, more or less in the range of the market. Um, things can, can go up or down one-sixth uh, off the average of the market. And if you, you can make a good deal, make a little extra profit um, uh, up to one-sixth above or or you make a good deal as a seller down to one below the price uh, or a buyer one six below the price um, but beyond that if you make a killing then the person who's been exploited because of their own ignorance or incompetence or whatever they can sue and the court is supposed to give them the money back so if if, if a you know piece of property is worth a hundred dollars and you unscrupulously get somebody to pay 150 for it then the person realizes that the object that they've bought is is not worth it, they should get the money back. So here, when talking about land, um, you only have a, a lease until the next Jubilee, but if you deceive that person or the person just makes a bad deal or whatever, don't do that, you have to give people a fair price and not an exploitative price, something that is like real, not just whatever you can persuade the other the other person to do, um, something that correlates to, to the actual uh, average in the market, um, or the person gets the money back or the deal's off. Barry, you wanted to chime in.
2: Yeah, what strike me, listening to you, Jeremy, is that what the laws of ona are designed to do is to preserve a partnership, that when you enter into a business relationship of buying and of selling, that we tend to focus on our specific role, either we're buying or we're selling, and we don't always care about the other person. But the law of ona is designed to preserve the balance between the two that the one cannot get too far away from the other. And the same thing, you know. again, coming back to the land, we have to find a balance with the land as well. That our use of the land has limits, and we cannot use the land any way we want and think that there won't be consequences. You know, as uh, part of the, the of this, uh, this week is the tokocha, a very lengthy description of all the things that are gonna go wrong, if we mistreat the land and the land's going to rebel and the the land is going to kick us out.
0: Beautifully well said, Barry, about the partnership. You know, we've been talking in, in American life in these last months and years about increasing inequality and how, you know, such an enormous percent of all the wealth is in, is in the 1% and the bottom, you know, the bottom 50, 60, 70% are suffering so much. If, if it's, as you said, Buyers and sellers are supposed to look out for the well-being of the their opposite number, right? The buyer has to say, is this fair to the seller and vice versa? Um, what would it be if wages in this country, if employers were thinking not only about their own bottom line, but what's, what's best for the employees as well? And employees similarly say, you know, I'm not not only whatever I can get out of this, but what's good for the company or something like that. Uh, I think we'd have, a, we'd have a different social life. Sure. Different, different set of relationships. Well, back
1: to the, the the relationship to the land, and of course that the land there is a conditionality to, to the land, and that is, I think, expressed in the in the second of our our this week, Bikhukotay. If you follow the laws, uh, God will, I will give you rain in its season. The land will. Yield its produce. The tree of the field will give forth its fruit. In other words, uh, living in the land is conditional to, um, and the, the the produce of the land, the blessings of the land, are conditional to your behavior and uh, mitzvot. And and that I think is a, is quite a unique aspect to the, the covenant. That the covenant, um, and here these these last chapters are, in a sense, the. The blessings and curses or the ramifications of following the covenant and not following the covenant um and some of them are quite quite severe this is a very difficult parsha to read um you know we have the tradition of reading this silently or reading it the, you know in a lower a lower tone um because of its of its um, real serious matter here um and uh how do you feel uh, about the idea of? I mean, it's a larger topic as always, but uh, this conditionality, and and how does it sit with you? And how does it sit in Jewish, in Jewish history? You know. It's big, there big-
0: yeah, I think it's. I think. Um, I think, conditionality, you know, is um, a moral necessity, right? And if you didn't think that. Um, you had responsibilities to uphold. You know, I, I don't go in for the, you know, punishment and reward theory of, you know, theology too too strongly. Um, as uh, it says in the Christian scriptures, you know, it rains on the just and the unjust alike, right? Rain, rain is, is an imprecise sort of uh, reward. So it's not that I think that in reality, um, especially not after, you know, the Shoah or something like that, you want to say that, that there are direct blessings and direct uh, curses. I do think that everybody should feel that the world is made good or bad by their behavior, right? And and that the living in a sacred way and, and um, keeping our end of the covenant improves the world, failing to keep our covenant materially harms the world. It's not that I think God says up there and, and you know, like Santa Claus knows if you've been naughty, knows if you've been nice. Um, it's that I think that the covenant materially makes us better people, makes better societies, makes a better world. And when it fails to do that, then we find devastation. So I want as a Jew to feel that um, the continued thriving of my people, the continued thriving of my family, our own um, residence in the land, uh, both in the land as in the world and as Eretz Yisrael, is contingent upon our uh, virtue. In a way that 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 insight
1: allowed for, for, I think the the way for the Jewish people to deal with um, its, its, History um, and constantly reevaluate itself. It's it's it, it uh, being in exile uh, meant that it had to make good with its part of the covenant. And of course, you know these ideas break down at some point. But um, you know this 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 these words here, these laws, these rules, and and the ramifications give us a real sense of the conditionality and a real sense of possibility. Barry, you wanna, you wanna just?
2: Yeah, I think that one thing that stands out is that conditionality is also related, I think, to a sense of being temporary. Part of the the laws of the land have to do with the temporary nature of life. And it's a wonderful way of casting the fact that our lives on one hand are bound by change. We. We're born, we grow, we die, but also that it it comes to an end as well. And the cycles of the land remind us that we're part of a larger picture. We come in at different points of the Yovel cycle, the Jubilee cycle. We're born in a certain year and we're going to leave the world at some year in the Jubilee cycle as well. That's the constant. Our lives are inconstant. And... We look for a way of finding a sense of security, perhaps, but we're not going to find that sense of permanence that perhaps we all seek, because what's permanent, as the Bible reminds us, is the land and not the people.
1: You know, I'm relating to what you're saying uh, in a different way, because this um, these parshiot do mark the end of Ayikra, uh, a book, and, and that places us in a real kind of, thematic turning point it's a it's it is a point to pause and it is a point to reflect on uh on, on where we are in the yearly cycle you know as jews we we mark our yearly cycle based on the and you know i keep thinking you know it would be at around these this time of the year uh at as we begin you know we conclude by and enter bamidbar you know we we the three of us would we'll be thinking about, you know, where where we're headed, where we're going, and, and how the summer is going to unfold. And that itself, you know, for us this year, I think is giving us a lot of pause. We are all thinking about, um, you know, this moment as a critical moment, certainly, you know, in, in the yearly cycle, and, and frankly, in the, in the life cycles of many of the people that we uh, live our lives with, um, many of whom are concluding years of study, many of whom are you know, ending, ending, um, you know, courses, uh, they're ending uh, the university, they're graduating, a lot of uh, graduations are going to take place within, or, you know, they they were supposed to take place uh, over the next uh, several weeks. I was walking on Rutgers campus, uh, the other day was seeing people dressed up in a gown, you know, taking pictures. It's, it's, it's um, kind of, you know, sad, it's visceral, you know, whether the, 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 the seasons of life that people are going through without the fullest expression uh, thereof. And so here, you know, we're, we're marking the end of, of a, of a piece of our lives, you know, Torah enables us
0: to mark a piece of our lives. And, uh, I want to just add to what you're saying about, about one more thing in the life cycle. Um, you know, it's, it's customary, uh, this t- Today, right now, as we're recording, this is the 35th day of the Omer. Uh, it's customary not to get married from Pesach until the 33rd day of the Omer, and then so mid to late May through June is wedding season. And and there's no weddings this year. This is a really sad. I've had a number of weddings canceled. Uh, this is a this is like a sad feature of this. Uh, there's a. It's a little, little autumn quality to our spring this year. it's, or as we would say, it's a body
2: check. We've got a body check here. It's a body oh, that's check. for the hockey you know, people. The hockey word? Yeah, <laughs> is that of
0: those Canadian words. Definitely <laughs> Canadian
2: <laughs> words. It's, it's Canadian is. culture. It's body it's check. Filtered word. down to the U.S. Yet
0: we got our bell
2: clock rung or something. I don't know. You're but,
0: your, you know, you bell rung.
1: We're we we're, we're, we're thinking about it. we're thinking. You know, people people are suffering on many many levels. I think. Time, of course, is one aspect of that. And time uh, was the, the theme that we began with, with um, the cycles of time. Time is how we're going to bring uh, our, our, our discussion to a conclusion. Because we're
0: almost
2: so ended. we might end the way we end the Torah service, that now especially is the time to hold fast to the Torah. Or we could end, as we're going to end the book, Chazak. Chazak.
1: Well, thank you. That's a great way to end it. Thank you, Rabbi Barry Chester. Thank you, Rabbi Jeremy Kalonowski. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malvin. This has been another great edition of Marsha Talk. Join us next week. We'll be back. Shabbat shalom.